A listener's note. This episode deals with the topic of torture. While we've made a conscious effort to leave out any graphic descriptions of torture, we still want to point out that this episode might not be suitable for everyone. Please take care when listening. During their proceedings in Koblenz, the judges have been consistently asking witnesses about medical care in the Al-Khatib branch. A picture has arisen of neglect bordering on abuse. One witness testimony actually came from a doctor who was tasked with looking after detainees' health in branch 251. He testified to the conditions of the detainees, both dead and alive. There's something seemingly paradoxical about the presence of doctors in a place that's designed to harm people. A man who worked for seven years as a guard at the El Khatib branch said he had to ask the head of the branch several times to get even one single painkiller for a prisoner. So why are doctors even there then? What are they doing in detention centers? And how did we get here? What kind of doctor intentionally neglects or hurts people? On today's episode, We're taking a first look at a huge and complex topic, medical violence in Syria. Medical violence is a silent, intimate, and secretive violence. Silent because often it's a crime of omission, of neglect. Intimate because the perpetrator knows you in a deeply personal and sensitive way. Secretive because the traces are hidden, the evidence destroyed, the damage whitewashed, filed away as natural and inevitable. Syria's healthcare system has a long history of instrumentalization for political purposes. From the 1960s onward, with the Ba'ath Party in power, This was no different. At the time, marginalized areas were typically neglected. Peripheral places such as Idlib, Dara, and the countryside, most of Syria really, had little to no medical services. Urban centers such as Damascus, on the other hand, had a high concentration of modern healthcare facilities. The Ba'ath Party sought to change this and directed resources toward facilities and medical services in peripheral and rural areas. Clinics and hospitals sprung up where there hadn't been any before. Crucially, they brought Ba'athist healthcare professionals into these areas. The Ba'ath Party's ambitious plan to reduce inequality was not necessarily bad. But tackling inequality also was not necessarily the goal. It was more a means to an end. Political manipulation to gain popularity. The consequences, intended or not, were disastrous. The party essentially politicized an entire sector which is supposed to strive to be apolitical. Instead, boundaries were drawn along ideological and sectarian lines. Consequently, discrimination against and polarization of non-Bathist medical professionals ran rampant within the healthcare sector. Now, we want to take a moment here to acknowledge that not a single healthcare system in the world operates in a vacuum. Bias and politics influence doctors worldwide. However, the instrumentalization, the politicization, and subsequent militarization of Syria's healthcare sector deserves our special attention. 
To this day, it plays an important role in Assad's deadly regime. In 1964, the Ba'ath Party waived the medical school tuition. Studying medicine would be free of charge. But when the time came for those students turned doctors to treat people who demonstrated against the regime, they were branded traitors. The intelligence services of the regime arrested nurses and doctors and interrogated them. People who were doing what they were trained to do had to hear that they were ungrateful and disloyal to a state that educated them and provided them with opportunity. Nothing is free. Under Hafez al-Assad's rule, efforts to manipulate the healthcare sector became more brazen. Medical students used the Ba'ath Party salute to swear their oath of medical ethics. When applying for a job in healthcare, party membership was more important than professional qualifications. Practicing doctors that were loyal to the regime would receive more government funding. Grants, scholarships, government positions, whatever one's career ambitions in the medical field were, if they weren't accompanied by fierce party loyalty, you could forget about them. But this is not just a story about politicization. It's also one of militarization. Militarization occurs when a regime increases the presence of the military in a country's healthcare sector. In Syria, militarization was meticulously and patiently executed. Medical professionals and aspiring medical students were persuaded, if not coerced, to make a career within the military, but not before making sure military doctors were then deployed not to just military hospitals, but also military prisons and security branches, such as Branch 251. And so what we see today is a striking amount of army and security officials that are also doctors. Let's not forget here that the Syrian president himself was a doctor, a trained ophthalmologist. Over time, the military and its sprawling intelligence agencies built an elaborate surveillance system that extended to all aspects of Syrian life. The healthcare sector was no exception. Within hospitals, ideological fault lines were reproduced. In the 1980s, the regime ramped up the marginalization of dissenting voices in the medical sector. Doctors, nurses, cleaners, and guards reported to intelligence services about their colleagues' suspicious activities. Suspicious activities included disobedience, criticism of the government, affiliation with an opposition party, and refusal to participate in an election. Any and all of these supposed offenses could get a doctor or a nurse in trouble. By 2011, when the uprising began, the Syrian healthcare sector was largely run by regime loyalists. It was deeply intertwined with the military and the security apparatus was ever-present. In short, the healthcare sector was perfectly positioned to take on its deadly role. But it wasn't just a breeding ground for perpetrators, of course. Some doctors did everything they could to adhere to their ethical standards. Unfortunately, standing their ground was becoming more dangerous within the walls of the increasingly politicized and militarized hospitals. In July 2012, with the uprising in full swing, things reached a new boiling point. Bashar al-Assad introduced a sweeping anti-terrorism law. In regime-controlled areas, treating protesters was now considered an act of terrorism. Treating civilians in opposition-held areas was labeled terrorism as well. 
According to the NGO Physicians for Human Rights, at least 930 medical professionals were killed between 2011 and 2021, with the first four years being particularly deadly. Because hospitals where they worked faced targeted airstrikes, for example, or because they were detained and executed or tortured to death. The anti-terrorism law and the intense violence forced many doctors to make an impossible choice. Stay and risk your own life, or quit and leave countless people at the mercy of Assad's bloody regime. Some estimates suggest that roughly 10 to 15% of healthcare workers, including medical students, rejected the regime. They left their jobs or their studies, but they didn't leave Syria. They went underground to help build a parallel network of health facilities to treat injured demonstrators. About half of Syria's medical professionals fled the country. The rest stayed, either in silence or in support of the regime. So let there be no mistake. Plenty of medical professionals in Syria are victims of the regime. Doctors, nurses and paramedics that continue to work despite relentless aerial attacks did, and still do, essential work. But they are fighting an uphill battle. Here is a 2012 quote from a highly trained surgeon in Homs called Abu Hamza that was featured in the Guardian article. One day I treated a patient in the emergency room. The next day he was sent to the CT room for a brain trauma he didn't have the previous day. That's how I discovered that they did things to him at night. After two days, the patient died from his brain trauma. He would not have died from the injuries I treated the first day. Stories like Abu Hamza deserve their own space. In this episode, however, we'll be focusing on the quote-unquote bad doctors. The ones that weaponized their skills and expertise. Doctors that instead of doing no harm, did. The shape that this harm takes on varies widely. Regime-aligned doctors could be working in the context of civilian hospitals, clinics, prisons, detention centers, military hospitals, or intelligence branches. They might be reluctantly or wholeheartedly anti-opposition. They might be deeply and actively involved in interrogation and torture. They might be tasked with actually treating people, or they might not really do much of anything at all. Before we get into it more, let's talk for a bit about what medical violence is. Medical violence is a category of violence that involves systematic use of medical professional skills, Much like with, for example, the category of domestic violence, the definition says less about the specific type of damage that's being inflicted or the methods used, and more about the context of the violence and the dynamic between the perpetrator and the victim. And it's not just limited to straightforward perpetration either. Facilitating, supervising, and legitimizing can all fall under medical violence. For example, there are cases of doctors writing up false medical reports about detainees that died, The doctor's failure to investigate the real cause of death and instead come up with a natural cause of death is considered medical violence. Medical violence in general is a unique category of violence because it revolves around the medical professional's identity and actions. It's a process more than an act. It can be enabled by a political decision, then lead perpetrators down a path of torture and killing. Each step of this path is shaped by medical knowledge and skills. Since medical violence is such a broad term, and because it is such a widespread practice in Syria, we have to narrow our scope a bit. 
For now, we'll focus on the role of medical professionals in prisons and intelligence branches like Branch 251. Before the uprising in 2011, the role of doctors in prisons was limited. Typically, it was their job to monitor detainees and only intervene to keep them alive and conscious during their interrogation and torture. In fact, many times it's what doctors don't do that can be just as deadly as what they do. For example, depriving a hurt or sick detainee of care means that the smallest injury could be fatal. Since it's standard procedure to collect information on the detainee's health, prison doctors usually have an idea of the pre-existing conditions of the prisoners. It's valuable knowledge that can be easily exploited. For example, a prisoner could have asthma. The doctor knows full well that this person requires certain living conditions as well as treatment. And just by understanding this, he can hand the people in charge of interrogation an invisible weapon, perfectly tailored to this specific prisoner. Because why go through the trouble of beating someone if you can trigger the same amount of stress by simply denying them care? Practices like these are intentional. They are systematic and they're an efficient regime tool. And while neglect is still the most common form of medical violence in intelligent branches, since 2011, it seems that doctors have taken on a more active role as well. We should bear in mind, however, that every branch is different. In some branches, doctors provide a bare minimum of care, whereas in other branches, doctors actively participate in torture. In some branches, there are no doctors at all. The following quote belongs to a former detainee. Upon arrival, he was examined by a doctor. They blindfolded me and stripped me of clothing. Then they called a doctor. The doctor did not talk to me. He touched my limbs, chest, then pressed my stomach. Then he said, he has strong muscles. Start with three. Three is a number that corresponds to a level of intensity on a sliding scale. It was the level of torture the doctor thought would be appropriate for this detainee. There are reports of doctors actually performing torture on prisoners as well. Survivors of Syrian detention centers and hospitals have told shocking stories of doctors torturing and killing other inmates. Broadly speaking, we've learned that doctors in prisons and intelligence branches consciously created circumstances that increased the likelihood of death. So many detainees suffered and died in detention centers, and not despite the presence of doctors, but rather because... For perpetrators in Syria, these tactics of medical neglect and violence were not just cheap. They were also an effective form of psychological torture. In our episode on sexual violence, they pay twice, we already discussed how psychological and emotional stress can effectively break a person with minimal effort on the part of the perpetrators. This is a dynamic that we see in the context of medical violence in Syria as well. The relationship between a patient and a doctor or a patient and a nurse, is unique in how intimate it is. There's this other person who knows a lot about you. Personal, intimate facts. There's supposed to be someone you can trust. Someone who cares for you and cares about you. Someone who once swore an oath to treat the ill to the best of one's ability. It begs the question, how do people who are supposed to be healers end up doing so much damage? For this, we spoke to Ugur Umit Ungur. He's a professor of Holocaust and Genocide Studies at the University of Amsterdam and the Institute for War, Holocaust, and Genocide Studies in Amsterdam. 
He's also the author of the book Syrian Gulag, Assad's Prisons 1970-2020, which is scheduled to be published in March 2022, in which he discusses the immense power doctors have in the context of Syria's prison system. So first and foremost, as an authoritarian government, the Assad regime has ambitions to, to overtake large parts of its uh, professional workforce. So that includes not only doctors, but also um, journalists uh, or, or peasants or lawyers. So these um, uh, particular professional sectors in society, uh, the regime has ambitions uh, to, uh, to draw them into its own orbit um, and by politicizing them, by um, having these type of groups uh, be loyal first and foremost to the regime rather than to their own profession. One other important factor in the mobilization of Syrian doctors for, uh, in, in the commission of uh, very, very serious uh, crimes against uh, humanity um, is the uh, particular um, class and sectarian structures uh, of Syria. So we had, starting from the 1970s and the 1980s, um, the gradual rise of Alawite doctors uh, in the system and the graduate almost takeover of uh, the, uh, the the medical profession in Syria by military doctors of an Alawite background, mostly very loyal to the regime. Uh, and these, um, in the in the eyes of these particular doctors, the uh, profession should not be ceded to the bulk of the Syrian uh, population, uh, but should be controlled by them. So this particular mentality also has led them to um, to be mobilized in the commission of, of violence. In principle, there's nothing that made medical professionals particularly vulnerable to um, mobilization for violence in Syria. But it is important to look at the uh, the cultural context in which doctors in Syria operated. Namely, historically, uh, let's say in the past uh, half century, uh, Syria has uh, developed immensely and, and doctors and the medical profession has grown exponentially, uh, which has also meant that doctors have uh, received um, much more respect. Um, doctors have relative power in society. Uh, and that power, of course, uh, is something that the regime is aware of. And that can be at any time um, used or abused for various purposes. Of course, the key moment was in 2011 when uh, people started demonstrating in Syria massively and the regime started considering any medical support to uh, wounded demonstrators as a form of support to those demonstrators politically. So by driving that wedge into society, uh, by by pulling the medical profession into uh, a profoundly politicized direction, pulling them away from what they're supposed to be doing, uh, this is uh, one way the regime really made uh, made it impossible to provide any humanitarian support uh, really to anybody outside of those groups that were uh, approved by the regime. History is full of examples of medical violence from the German doctors experimenting on prisoners in concentration camps during World War II to American and British psychological torture programs following 9-11. The common denominator between any instances of medical violence is the presence of a regime with exclusionary policies. Is there anything unprecedented about the Syrian case, though? What is unique uh, or unprecedented about medical violence in Syria is the absolute uh, disrespect for uh, medical neutrality. Uh, that includes medical neutrality in the sense of uh, the medical facilities under the control of the regime. So those were thoroughly militarized, but also the medical neutrality in terms of 
the uh, facilities under the control of the opposition. Those were, of course, uh, attacked uh, and assaulted deliberately. Uh, so, and, and of course, in civil wars, it often happens um, that hospitals end up in the line of fire. But the very specific politicization and targeting uh, of medical facilities, of medical personnel, of the profession in general, uh, that is really unique and unprecedented in this case. We could list many forces that drive medical violence. The similarities between the medical profession and military institutions, doctors' efficiency, organization, and abilities to select victims, to instill fear and make threats, the appearance of legitimacy, the gravitas of the title, and the access to tools and medication. Medical violence is of significance because it has a lasting impact on victims and on society as a whole. It shatters their trust in humanity and trust in what medicine represents for a civilization and its well-being. Before we end this episode, we want to address a very sticky dimension of medical violence and its perpetrators. We mentioned before that we are discussing quote-unquote bad doctors. This doesn't fully capture, of course, the complexity and the elusiveness of perpetration. What we have been discussing today is violence that takes place among more violence, mass violence. And with that come difficult questions of motivation, responsibility and choice. Just like in any other context of mass violence, scholars, judges, and the people swept up in the bloodshed themselves are confronted with people who don't fit neatly in the category of victim or perpetrator. Some people are a bit of both. This is also the case when it comes to medical violence, and it's really hard to figure out what to make of these people. If nothing else, the tales of healers turned perpetrators underline the Assad regime's deliberate policy to implicate entire sections of Syrian society by poisoning, manipulating, and destroying institutions and communities, promoting acceptance and indifference towards victims and the regime's continuous genocidal violence. While the trial in Koblenz is in its final phase, other new trials are on the horizon. This summer, the German federal prosecutor general indicted Ala M for crimes against humanity. Ala M is a doctor. The allegations against him are very serious. His alleged crimes are unspeakably cruel and horrific. If the court accepts the prosecutor's indictment and decides to allow the case to go to trial, then the proceedings against Ala M are set to start soon in Frankfurt, Germany. It will likely bring a lot more attention to the role of medical professionals in the torturous Assad regime. Once again, it will be through the brave testimony of Syrian survivors that the world will find out more about the inner workings of Bashar al-Assad's Syria. Yeah, the last days in court in Koblenz actually turned out to be quite interesting and we actually heard some uh, witnesses that were requested by the defense who I guess had something good to say about Anwar Ar or something in his favor. Um, one of them was an officer from the German Federal Police and uh, this story is a little bit complicated so I'm going to try to break it down. Um, so all, all, actually almost all the witnesses in Koblenz have 
like they were interrogated by the police before they were later summoned to court. And this police officer had interrogated one of the plaintiffs, a filmmaker, um, who was detained in Al Khatib branch and who later testified in Koblenz. He, he testified in September. So back then, when this police officer interrogated the, the witness, the plaintiff, um, that plaintiff had told him that he had met the famous Syrian human rights lawyer, Anwar al-Budni, uh, to make a film about his work. They met in Germany. And the witness said to the police officer that, that uh, al-Budni showed him a picture of Anwar R., told him his name and told him that he had worked in Al-Khatib branch. And back then, the witness said, he recognized Anwar R. on that photo because he had seen uh, him in the branch before. And he recognized him again when he was shown pictures uh, at the police station during his police interrogation. So we have a witness who talked to Anwar Bunni first, saw a picture potentially of Anwar R. Later went to the German Federal Police, was shown more pictures, uh, recognized Anwar R again, and now he was in court. Um, and the problem is that in court last month, he changed his testimony and he said that no one had ever shown him any photos. Anwar and Budni had not shown him any photos. So there was a contradiction. And that's why the court summoned that police officer to find out you know, what happened during the interrogation. And uh, the police officer confirmed that. That was a story that he had heard that uh, the, the photo had in fact been shown to the witness before he ever came to the police. Um, well, we're not really going to know what actually happened, but it seems that the defense is trying to prove uh, that witness testimonies in this trial have been manipulated by Anwar al-Bunni. But we'll see what the court makes of this and how the court evaluates uh, the credibility of, of these witnesses and their testimonies. And another testimony that I found very interesting was um, a Syrian novelist who, uh, who's apparently quite successful and famous. Uh, he was detained in the branch back in 2011, February 2011, and he was interrogated by Anwar R. personally, but he, he remembered that uh, encounter to be quite friendly and he said that they talked a lot about literature and that Anwar R. actually told him that it had been his dream to uh, become a writer. Um, I guess this is another example of what we talked about recently, that Anwar R is very fond of culture and arts, and he, he, he wishes to be a writer himself. So uh, these two, Anwar R and this witness, they met again later in Turkey, and they even developed a kind of friendship. Um, and I guess this witness also didn't really say much about Anwar R's political position, whether he was with the regime or with the opposition, but he did say that um, when they met in Turkey, Anwar R told him that he had, they would have liked to defect much, much earlier, but he couldn't because he couldn't uh, have left his family. Um, yeah, and so they met several times. Uh, Anwar R actually stayed at this witness's home uh, for, a, for a few nights when he was in a, in a difficult situation, stranded in, in Istanbul. Um, and the witness once or several times asked him why he wasn't sharing all the information he had from all the insider information he had uh, with with international courts and investigators and he said that Anwar R responded that um, one day he will write a book about it but he's not so fond of being in touch with the media and so on. So perhaps he will have time to write that book if he goes to prison. Um, we're still not sure when or if he will be convicted but um, there are some new motions by the defense so the trial could be prolonged a bit but the verdict is still expected to happen till the end of the year.
Branch 251 is a 75 podcast production. Today's episode was hosted by Noor Hamade and Naya Skaf. Editing, production, and mixing by myself, Pauline Peek, with help from Hannah Elhitemi and Fritz Streif. The script was written by Ansar Shaud and myself. Ansar did all the groundwork for this episode, and her expertise and insight into this topic were absolutely invaluable. And a special thanks to Professor Dr. Ur Umit Unger. Support for our podcast comes from German Federal Foreign Office funds that are provided by IFAS Civic Funding Program.